Hello, everyone. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, and your host here on Last Week in the Church. This is the show where we, as you well know, sort of raid the fridge of Catholic journalism, take out a few stories that are by now a few days old, serve them up piping hot and delicious. We have been off the air for a month, but baby, we are back. We are back in that Roman groove. And here's what we've got for you this week. First, the Italian bishops take a remarkably cautious step in the direction of transparency on clerical sexual abuse. So cautious, in fact, that critics would say it's virtually invisible. We'll explain what's going on there. Second, on their controversial synodal path, the German bishops sit down for a meeting with their opposite numbers in the Vatican this past week. The Vatican made a kind of proposal about where to go from here. The German response could best be phrased as, thanks, but no thanks. Third, the Vatican's ousted auditor struck back this week, attempting to file a $10 million lawsuit in a Vatican court. We will unpack what his complaint is and what might happen. Fourth, Pope Francis makes a, a very sweet and long-anticipated homecoming over the weekend, although it's not quite the homecoming people have been expecting over the past decade of his pontificate. And finally this week, movie review will have a few thoughts on the new Netflix documentary, Vatican Girl. All that is waiting for you on the other side, so please stick around. All right, and we are back. As I mentioned at the top, we have been off the air for the past month. I know I didn't announce that in advance, and I apologize for that lack of clarity. What happened is that I had to go in here in Rome for a surgery on my esophagus. I had thought I would be laid up for about two weeks. In the end, it turned out to be a full month. I know most of you didn't know that was going on. Some of you did. And your well wishes and your prayers are deeply appreciated. For the rest of you who were in the dark, my apologies for the fact that we just kind of vanished for a while. But I promise you, we are back. And one of the things that this whole episode has taught me is that I ought to be extremely grateful for many things. One of them is the capacity to do something that I absolutely love for a living. So let's get to it. So we begin this week with the story of the Italian bishops' long-anticipated effort to sort of come clean about clerical sexual abuse. Now, since the beginning of the sexual abuse scandals, we have seen many European bishops' conferences commission these kind of in-depth, longitudinal, national-level sort of disclosures about the scope and scale of the sexual abuse crisis in their country. We have seen the Irish bishops do that. We have seen the British bishops do that. We have seen the Germans, the Belgians, the Dutch, the French, and others. And so next up, it seemed to many people, would be the Italians. And in fact, the Italian bishops this past week did call a press conference to present 
a report on clerical sexual abuse. However, as opposed to those other European conferences, this was not an effort to document the entire scale of the crisis from the beginning. It was, in fact, simply a report on the past year. Of course, under the terms of reforms decreed by Pope Francis, all dioceses in the Catholic Church are supposed to have established these listening centers, kind of reporting centers, where people can make reports about acts of abuse, or at least potential acts of abuse, in the expectation that those reports will be acted upon. So the Italian bishops announced this week that they had collected 89 such reports over the course of the past year, and they added that those reports were directed against all personnel of the church, so it includes priests, religious, and laity, anybody acting on behalf of the Catholic Church in Italy. Beyond that, we really don't know very much. They didn't tell us what the nature of these accusations were, and they didn't provide any sense of what was done about them. That is to say, whether canonical procedures were opened up, whether they were relayed to civil authorities, and what action might have ensued there. We just don't know. Now, in the course of presenting all of this, the Italian bishops also added that they have sort of worked out an arrangement with the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in the Vatican so that researchers will be able to get access to all of the files about abuse cases in Italy that are currently in the congregation. And they, and they revealed that there are 613 such files. Now, that doesn't mean there are 613 accusations. A particular file could contain more than one accusation. Another file may not actually have any, any real allegation, but simply reports, concerns, whatever. So how many cases there are, we don't know. We know there are 613 files. Again, what's in those files and what happened to them remains unknown. We should also add that in terms of the information compiled for this report, there are 227 Catholic dioceses in Italy. Only 158 of them actually answered the questionnaire that the Italian bishops had sent around. So in other words, more than a quarter of all Italian dioceses did not actually participate in this process. And we know that at least one of those dioceses that didn't participate right now has a priest who is facing criminal trial on charges of sexual violence against minors. Yet that information would not have been included in this report because the diocese opted out. So critics, including the leading sort of network group, advocacy group, on behalf of abuse victims here in Italy, have dismissed this report as, and I'm quoting here, a joke. Now, whether you want to go that far, it clearly is the case that this report is not comparable to the kinds of sweeping, detailed reports we have seen from other European bishops' conferences. Now, in all fairness, Spokespersons for the Italian conference did say during this press conference that this report does not rule out doing one of these larger national level studies. They simply said, this is a first step and, you know, we will see what else might be done. So, in other words, I suppose 
the jury is still out. I think probably what one can say objectively is that the report we saw this past week, while admittedly more information than we had previously, certainly has not satisfied people who are skeptical about the willingness of the Italian bishops in particular to come clean. All right, second story from this past week. Now, this past week, German bishops made their traditional ad limina visit to the Vatican. Ad limina is an Italian phrase meaning to the threshold, in this case, the threshold of the apostles. In principle, there is nothing unusual about this at all. Every Catholic bishop in the world is obliged to make one of these ad limina visits every five years. Typically, when you've got a larger national conference, they try to do it together just for ease of organization. So in many ways, this was business as usual, except, of course, it wasn't. Because the German bishops, let's face it, are a kind of special case. For the last several months, the German bishops, in collaboration with the leading organization of Catholic laity in Germany, have been running something that they're calling well, a synodal way or a synodal process. That is not quite a formal ecclesiastical synod, but something that is synod-like, synod-esque, a sort of giant national listening session of the church in Germany. And this process has elicited, oh, a good deal of angst, to use the appropriate German word, in many Catholic circles because of concerns that at the end of the day, it may produce proposals that are at odds with official Catholic teaching, matters such as blessing same-sex unions or ordaining female clergy, at least female deacons, or ending clerical celibacy, or revising the church's positions on contraception or abortion, any number of other sort of hot button, what the Germans would call heisen eisen, the hot irons, those sorts of issues. Now, so when the German bishops were here this week, knowing that all of this is going on, the Vatican had proposed that there be a special kind of summit meeting where the German bishops and the Pope and leaders of several of the important Vatican departments would sit down and kind of hash this out. Now, at the last minute, the Pope decided not to participate personally. No explanation was given for that decision by the Vatican. Could have been a little bit like the reason President Kennedy decided not to participate in the meetings on the Cuban Missile Crisis, because maybe he was worried that if his presence was, if he was in the room, people would not feel free to speak their minds. They would just be trying to guess what he wanted them to say, well, we don't know. But in any event, the Pope did not take part in this meeting. So it was the German bishops and their opposite numbers in the Vatican. What we do know on the basis of a statement that was issued afterwards is that Vatican officials had proposed basically a moratorium that is a kind of halt, a pregnant pause, sasura in the German synodal process, and that with the idea being that it kind of be folded into the larger synod on synodality for the global church that Pope Francis has going on right now. 
in response to that, the German bishops basically said, you know, interesting idea, but no. No thanks. Uh-uh. No sale. You know, we're going to go ahead. And this on the basis that it would be deeply disappointing, their argument, to the people who have given of their time and energy and imaginations in the process so far, if it were to be sort of arbitrarily halted before it reached its natural conclusion. So, you know, the Germans are going to move ahead. No indication that Pope Francis is going to order them to stand down. And no particular indication that even if the Pope tried to do that, you know, of what the aftermath, what the result of that might be. So we are still sailing into uncharted waters. And, you know, we will just have to pay attention, wait and see what the outcome of this German process is. Now, let me just say, however, that if this German process were to produce proposals that are at odds with official Catholic teaching, it would hardly be the first time that a national-level consultation somewhere in the Catholic Church has ended that way. You know, typically, these proposals go to Rome where they kind of die a quiet death. We'll, we'll see what happens in this case. Probably the only thing to be said at this point is it certainly bears watching. All right, third story we've got this week. Libero Maloney, former executive of Deloitte, one of the big four global accounting firms, used to be the CEO, actually, of Deloitte in Italy, who was hired by Pope Francis in 2015 to be the Vatican's first ever independent auditor general who was supposed to be the guard guarding the guardians, like the ultimate check, right, that, that everything was above board. At the time, his hiring was touted as, you know, heralding a brave new world of transparency and accountability in Vatican finance. Two years later, he is essentially run out of the Vatican on a rail, unceremoniously fired on, amid charges that he was exceeding his authority, engaging in illegal espionage on various officials in the Vatican, basically that he was a loose cannon and not to be trusted. Ever since, Maloney has been on a kind of one-man crusade to try to restore his credibility and to try to make the argument that rather than him having done anything wrong, his problem was he was actually doing his job too well, that he was on the verge of uncovering a wide variety of acts of financial mismanagement, corruption, misappropriation, and so on, and that therefore his downfall was an effort by the old guard to try to prevent their dirty laundry from being aired in public. Now, he has tried to make that argument in a variety of ways. The most recent effort on his part was he announced not long ago that he and his former deputy, Federico Panucci, were going to file a $9.6 million lawsuit in the Vatican's own civil tribunal against the Secretary of State, the most powerful department in the Vatican, suing them for damage to their professional reputations and their livelihoods, and in the case of Panucci, also damage to his health 
because one of the things that happened when Maloney and Panucci were fired is that all the documents from their offices were seized. Now that included some of Panucci's medical records. He has prostate cancer. And because his medical records were never returned, he essentially had to restart the treatments that he was undergoing, which he argues impaired his chances at recovery and unnecessarily elongated the treatment that he was undergoing. Now, you have to admit that suing the Vatican Secretary of State in the Vatican's own tribunal, I mean, if there were an award for chutzpah, certainly in 2022, it would have to go to Libero Maloney. Now, what's going to happen to that lawsuit? I don't know, but I can tell you that early signs are not good. The first decision that had to be made by the tribunal was whether to certify Maloney's lawyer, a guy by the name of Romano Vaccarella, to represent him. They said no to that. So it does not appear that they are particularly interested in accommodating Maloney in this effort. Maloney held a press conference himself this week in which he described the Vatican's legal system as Orwellian and also described the Pope's silence on his case as deafening. Again, stay tuned. You know, we will see what happens. All right. Now, all those three things, right? The German bishops, the Italian bishops, and the former auditor means that the past week was not an especially good one for Pope Francis, which probably means that what the Pope did over the weekend was all the more welcome. He went up to northern Italy to the region of Piedmont, a town called Asti. Now that is where the Bergoglio family is from. That's where his family comes from before part of it immigrated to Argentina. Pope Francis still has relatives up there, and in fact, the reason he went he went up on Saturday. On Sunday, he did a public mass and does the thing, did the things the Pope normally does when he visits an Italian diocese. But on Saturday, that was just personal time for the Pope. He hung out with his relatives, including his second cousin, Carla Rabezzana, who was celebrating her 90th birthday. And she and Pope Francis have long been very close. They talk on the phone all the time. Carla said she still calls him Giorgio, you know, which is the Italian version of Jorge, meaning George, right? So she still calls the Pope by his given first name. By all accounts, this time with his relatives was sweet and, you know, so deeply meaningful for Pope Francis. It was a homecoming of sorts. I mean, the, the parish there in Asti still has his grandfather's baptismal records, and so on. However, this was not the homecoming that people have been anticipating from the beginning of Francis's papacy. We've all been waiting to find out when is he going to go back to Argentina, right? I mean, that's the homecoming that many people have wanted to see. I mean, consider that when John Paul was pope, he made nine trips back to Poland over the 26 years of his papacy. That's an average of one trip every three years. I mean, by that standard, Francis should already have been to Argentina three times since he's been in office for a decade. Now, I will grant you that the flight from Rome to Krakow is a much easier one than the flight from Rome to Buenos Aires. But still, 
it, it just strikes many people as odd that Pope Francis hasn't gone back to Latin America or to Argentina even once, given that he's visited almost every other country in Latin America by now. It is said that the Pope doesn't want to go back because he's afraid that his presence would be politically manipulated by one factor or faction or another. Of course, the truth is that's a risk every time the Pope hits the road, no matter where he goes. So it's a little puzzling why the Pope has chosen not to go. And of course, at this point, given his age and his physical condition, it's entirely possible he may never make his way back to Argentina. And therefore, this weekend in the Piedmont, in Asti, may be the closest he ever gets. Maybe the last time he actually has any face time with members of his family, which no doubt makes it all the more meaningful, all the more special, all the more memorable. Finally, we end this week with a very brief movie review. There is a new documentary on Netflix called Vatican Girl. It's about the case of Emanuela Orlandi, a 15-year-old girl who vanished in June 1983 from the streets of Rome. What makes her case particular is that her family lived inside Vatican walls. They worked for the Pope. Her dad was an official in the prefecture of the papal household. And so Emanuela Orlandi was a girl who lived in the Vatican, grew up in the Vatican, hence the title Vatican Girl. And ever since 1983, ever since her disappearance, her story has become the central sort of mystery gripping the Italian imagination for almost 40 years. It is the classic instance of what the Italians call a giallo an unresolved, unsolved mystery. Now, this documentary, which is more than four hours long, divided up into four distinct episodes, it is, you have to give it this, it has the virtue of being comprehensive. Every possible Machiavellian, overly complicated, highly implausible explanation for what might have happened here is given airtime from, it was the KGB, to it was the Italian mob. I mean, I'm surprised that alien abduction is not actually one of the, the possibilities that they consider. Certainly everything else is in there. It is a classically Italian piece of work, I would say, in that it is florid, overly produced, and in the end, unsatisfying, because they run through virtually every conspiracy theory you can imagine, but at the end, there's no meat on the bones in the sense that you have no better idea at the end of this four-hour thing of what actually happened to Emanuelo Orlandi than you did at the beginning. Here's what I think the problem is. The problem, and let me just say, that although it's easy to dismiss all of this as the ultimate in sort of, you know, wild conspiratorial thinking, let us not remember or rather, let us not forget, there is a family that has been waiting almost 40 years to know what happened to their daughter or their sister, their loved one. And that kind of agony is almost unimaginable if you haven't experienced it. So there's something really serious and real at the core of this story. Here's the problem. From the beginning, the problem with the way the Orlandi case was treated was and it's reflected in the title of this series. She was not treated 
as a girl who disappeared, whose case needs to be solved. She was treated as a Vatican girl, and therefore as a magnet for every Machiavellian, outlandish, implausible, wild conspiracy theory you can possibly imagine. The problem was that there was never a serious missing persons investigation until it was far too late because we were distracted by this cloud of speculation and innuendo, which this documentary series captures in painstaking and faithful, but ultimately deeply unsatisfying detail. Footnote, I make a brief cameo in this documentary. That, however, is hardly reason enough to give up four hours of your life to watch the whole thing. All right, that is our show for this week. Thank you for being with us. I swear to you on a stack of Bibles, we are not going to desert you again. I will be here again next week. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again soon.